Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You retweeted an unflattering picture of her next to a picture of your wife. I didn't start it. Oh, that's, I didn't uh, start uh, it. With all due respect, that's the argument of a five-year-old. Anytime he gets upset, anytime he gets threatened, anytime he gets scared, he begins yelling, he begins often cursing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Trumpcast, the show about the moral crisis known as Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Today's show is about how much blame the news media deserve for the rise of Donald Trump. I'm going to explore that question with Glenn Greenwald in a few minutes. But first, to ask a Trumpian question, what about me? Trumpcast isn't a normal journalistic endeavor. It's a show based on my judgment that Donald Trump is a dangerous man and a threat to American democracy of a kind we haven't seen before. But is even this show contributing to the problem by giving Trump even more attention? I've been thinking about that, and I honestly don't think so. The problem with the media's coverage of Trump, particularly the early coverage, is that it was both excessive and insufficiently critical. It gave Trump a giant platform to tell lies and inject a new kind of poison into American politics. And at least until very recently, it did a lousy job calling him to account for those lies and for that poison. It may be impossible to cover Trump without playing into his hands in some way, Attention is the narcissist's heroine, and even negative coverage is a fix. Trump's supporters are impervious to reasoned argument, and shame is a foreign language to him. But we no longer have the option of dismissing Trump or ignoring him. He's on the verge of becoming the Republican nominee for president. Whatever some of our earlier sins, journalists now have an obligation to understand the risk this poses and how it possibly could have happened. You can debate whether any particular piece of coverage counts as amplifying Trump or bringing him to book. On this show, I'm very conscious of trying to do the latter. Later, I'll talk to Glenn Greenwald about all of this. But before we do that, you might have read about Trump's physician, Dr. Harold Bornstein, who describes his patient's condition as follows. If elected, Mr. Trump, I can state unequivocally, will be the healthiest individual ever elected to the presidency. Today, we bring you... Mr. Trump's checkup. Thank you for seeing me on such short notice, Dr. Bernstein. Something really, really important has come up. Of course, Donald, baby, you're my only patient, obviously. And please, call me Harold. Right, Harold. Thank you. Tremendous, really. But I can still call you Mr. Trump, huh? Yes, I think that would be for the best. All right. So then, Mr. Trump... What's the matter? Honestly, I feel too good. 
I'm feeling fantastic. I keep winning primaries, winning caucuses. All I do is win. I'm high energy. My stamina right now is off the charts. I feel like a billion bucks, 10 billion counting brand value. Am I as good as I look? Well, uh, Mr. Trump, I know you don't like to be touched, but I can see from here that you have the body of an Olympic swimmer. Blood pressure looks perfect. Bad cholesterol, good. Good cholesterol is better. Better cholesterol is the best. Your cholesterol is astonishingly excellent. Do you want to check for a hernia? Of course I do. Let's have a look. Turn your head to the side and cough. Actually, no. Cough on me. Let me breathe it in. My coughs are fantastic. You are going to love this. Really, you are. (coughs) Love it, Mr. Trump. I adore it. That is an extraordinary cough. Okay, let's do the thing. Show it to me. Ah, little Marco has grown. Mr. Trump, that has got to be the largest of any American president Though I have heard that Chester A. Arthur, not for nothing... But Harold, how about my hands? Some people have been saying, that nice. So, take off the gloves. Wait, wait, those aren't gloves? Mr. Trump, as a graduate of the Donald J. Trump College of Real Estate, I can categorically state that those are the largest hands ever attached to any American president. My hands are huge. Huge! They're really, really huge. All right. It's time for the prostate check. Now, most patients, eh, they don't like it when I stick a finger up there. But since I've had my whole head up there for years now, I can tell you, believe me, it is fantastic. Fantastic. Absolutely. The best. Fantastic, doctor. Hold still. Hold still. That was, that was really good. I, it was that good was, for me, too. That was good. My guest today is Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept. Glenn shared the Pulitzer Prize in 2014 for his work on Edward Snowden's revelations. Glenn, welcome. Great to talk to you. So you wrote on The Intercept recently that journalists have abdicated their duty in relation to Donald Trump. What is their duty and how have they, or I guess I should say we, abdicated it? I think there's a sense that journalists have now embraced that Donald Trump presents what they regard anyway as this kind of unique threat to the political process. And there's a lot of self-examination about why more wasn't done earlier to declare this to be the case and to alert people of it. And I think the principal reason why more wasn't done earlier on to, to talk about Trump in these terms is because this obsession that journalists have with appearing neutral and objective, which prevents them from sort of sounding alarm bells when there's an extremist or dangerous political trend, because they think that makes them subjective or non-neutral. But first, I I just want to be clear on what it is about the coverage that bothers you. Is it that there was too much of it? Is it that there is still too much of it, that it was uh, not critical enough, or that it's still not critical enough, or some combination of those things? No, interestingly, I think that journalists are now, I wouldn't say united, because that overstates the case, but overwhelmingly opposed to the Trump candidacy and are being pretty open about it. Um, I think there's a lot of media hostility now to Trump's campaign that didn't exist early on. I think early on, this kind of faux objectivity, these kind of like mandates of neutrality prevailed so that it was very rare that a journalist who thinks they're objective or should be objective was willing to really 
describe or call out the extremism and the dishonesty at the crux of the Trump campaign. And I think that that was reflective of, of how um, this obsession with appearing objective can disable journalism and render it impotent. I think now that he's kind of widely recognized as this threat, now that it's clear that he's overwhelmingly unpopular, journalists are suddenly really brave about coming forward and saying, you know, Trump is a liar and Trump is dangerous. But early on, I think they were hobbled significantly by this demand that they appear neutral. So you kind of use the terms objectivity and neutrality interchangeably. To me, they're they're somewhat different things. I mean, neutrality is what I consider sort of obnoxious because it's sort of this idea that the journalist's obligation is to provide kind of equal time and that both sides, whatever they are, are kind of equally valid. I mean, objectivity to me is more just the idea that you're aware of your own biases, you account for them, and you try to be objective about what is the truth. So I think there's a couple questions there, and and I agree there they are different concepts. I think that a lot of journalists feel that they have an obligation to be both objective and neutral. But you're right. I think some journalists say I don't have to be neutral. I only have to be objective. And sometimes objectivity will drive me to taking one side, not because I'm being biased, but because that's just where the facts sort of compel me to be. But even there, I mean, I think that the problem with this concept of objectivity is that as human beings, we just aren't objective. We don't perceive the world through an objective prism. We perceive it through a highly subjective one that's shaped by an endless number of factors, our socioeconomic uh, situation, our nationality, our environment, our personality, our just experiences. And so I always, I personally think it's a much more honest form of journalism. And you actually kind of hinted at this to say, here are the subjective biases that um, I operate by. Here are the beliefs I have. Here are the outcomes I, I think should, should result, rather than concealing those and pretending to float above them. Um, and I think the way that that pretense manifests often is to avoid expressing the thoughts that one actually has um, in the name of appearing objective. And that can lead people to do things like treat Donald Trump like any other garden variety political candidate, even though he isn't. But, you know, as a, as a journalist, and I'm sure you've had this experience as well, if you sort of come out and declare all your biases at the outset and kind of say which side you're on, people then discount what you say because they think you're just arguing a partisan point of view and not doing what you're always trying to do as a serious journalist, which is get to the bottom of things, tell the truth, be fair to the other side and views you don't agree with, even though you do have a point of view. I think that's valid. And and for me, um, I try and treat that issue the following way, which is no matter where you fall in this debate of how objective a journalist should be or how subjective they're permitted to be or how open they are about it or how much they conceal it, I think everybody agrees that the primary metric, the most important metric by far, is the accuracy of one's reporting and of what one says. That's certainly what I think. And so we should all recognize that being accurate means that we don't get too entrenched in our viewpoints. We don't get too attached to or committed to a particular ideology, certainly not to a political campaign or to a candidate, because that closes us off to looking at things a different way that might be necessary to being accurate. What I don't agree with, though, is that by declaring your beliefs up front, I don't mean, you know, sort of 
you know, kind of like running for Congress and checking off every box on every issue ahead of time um, in order to allow yourself to be put into an ideological box, because that does close people off to what you're saying in a way that they might be open to it. I just simply mean that if you're talking about a particular topic or reporting on a particular controversy and you have strong views on that the way most of us typically do, that we ought to be clear about what those views are so that readers can take them into account and so that we can also um, be open to what our own biases are and, and therefore be more likely to reexamine them. Is your ideal here closer to the European press or the British press where the newspapers are identified with a point of view? Yeah, I think in part that's a model that I find more honest, and I actually do find that more honest. Um, but I also, and, and you know, it's interesting because you, in the UK, for example, which is where I have more experience since I worked at, at The Guardian for a while, um, even though, you know, certain newspapers are identified as being on one particular place on the spectrum or the other, um, there's a lot of cross appeal. Um, you see people on the right often citing um, what are perceived as more liberal newspapers and, and vice versa, liberals citing conservative papers because accuracy and reliability aren't necessarily tied to ideological positioning in some ways that people just have more faith in institutions that admit their, their subjective outlook rather than pretending that they don't have it. That's where suspicion is bred, I think, when media outlets say we're objective and float above these political opinions and and people start distrusting them. But the other model that I think is really important is not just the European model, but this is one I talked about in the piece, and I'm always interested to hear people say about this who might have different, different opinions about how journalists should behave. I mean, two of the most kind of heralded moments in recent journalistic history, um, and you, know, you can go much further back where the American press was much more like the European press in the 18th and 19th century, the turn of the 20th century, much more muckrating and crusading. But even recent, the two historical examples of, of kind of admired journalism are when Edward R. Murrow you know, used his broadcast to denounce um, McCarthyism, to attack a sitting Republican senator from Wisconsin for his extremism and, and radicalism. And then also Walter Cronkite, it's a more ambiguous case, um, but he was pretty much widely perceived to have called for an end to the Vietnam War on the grounds that it was no longer winnable, really inserting himself into a major political controversy. I don't think anyone thinks that those were unjournalistic acts. In fact, people think that those were really impressive acts of, of modern journalism, and they both involved a journalist stepping outside of this objectivity and expressing their views very clearly. But that, and that goes to the distinction I was talking about, uh, though, Glenn, because, you know, both um, Murrow and Cronkite thought of themselves as striving towards objectivity, but they weren't neutral about something that they thought was a threat to American democracy or American society, and they didn't withhold their judgment about those things. Okay, but, but I, don't, I, I don't actually think that most American journalists working at large establishment media outlets would or could do anything like that. Um, and I'll give you an example. There was this uh, CNN reporter, Elise Labatt, who on the day that Congress enacted a bill uh, or the House approved a bill to ban uh, refugees from coming to the U.S., Muslim refugees, she went on Twitter and made a very kind of mild statement saying something like, the statute of liberty is weeping, by which she simply meant that this bill um, that had just been voted on by the House was inconsistent with the principles enshrined by the statute of liberty. I think that was objective. It certainly wasn't neutral. She was expressing opposition to the bill, 
Um, and yet she was instantly suspended by CNN for two weeks on the grounds that what she did was improper and she was forced to apologize. That, I think, is the kind of thing I'm talking about. That is the prevailing ethos. Probably not at Slate, which I think gives some more flexibility to people, but certainly at places like CNN or the Washington Post um, or NBC News, where even mild expressions um, that are perceived to uh, be on one side or the other are viewed as a violation of the journalistic duty rather than a vindication of it. Or an NPR where Cokie Roberts was sort of called out for stating kind of just the obvious about about Donald Trump's threat to the Republican exactly. Party. Exactly. And, 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 you know, yeah. and, and it wasn't even just NPR executives, but even the, the host of Morning Edition, David Green, said to her, you know, look, don't you understand why a lot of us in journalism who believe in objectivity are really uncomfortable by what you did, telling her that she shouldn't have done it, that that's not the role of journalists. And all she did was so mild. I mean, she essentially said that Donald Trump's candidacy represents a whole range of values that are antithetical to, you know, sort of mainstream, healthy American democracy. You can agree with that or disagree with that, but how could it be antithetical to a journalist's role to say so? And that's really to what speak, I'm talking to about. To speak the, the obvious truth, I, I, I agree with you. But I guess the question, I mean, that's sort of objectivity made into a fetish and, and kind of made into a ridiculous fetish. But what does the opposite look like? I mean, if, you know, if you're editing the Washington Post is the lead story tomorrow, you know, D- Donald Trump continued his idiotic spectacle, you know, the morons who support him, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm always very hesitant to say that there should be just one model of journalism. You know, I mean, I believe in a particular model that, that I think is healthy to be in the mix, but I certainly don't think it's the only kind of approach to journalism that contributes a lot. And, and even the institutions I criticize most, like the New York Times or the Washington Post or sometimes even NPR, do actually really good journalism. A lot of times they do, and they have a lot of great journalists working within them. But I do think that with Trump, more and more journalists, even the ones who work at the places that most venerate or, or fetishize objectivity, are, for whatever reasons, able now to step away from that tone of, of, of voice that they're supposed to use for everything else and speak in much more disparaging terms about Trump. I don't know if you agree with that, but if you do, I'm interested in sort of understanding why that is. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear you know, these media outlets that obviously are giving their journalists more flexibility than they normally have um, to speak disparagingly about a political candidate, explain why they think it's appropriate in this case. Well, I think there's some sense of conscience that's kicking in both at the level of individual journalists and probably at the the level of the news organizations. I mean, everybody has challenged them on the role they played in, in giving a platform to Donald Trump, amplifying Donald Trump. I mean, President Obama gave a speech a couple of days ago where he sort of called this out. And I, I actually think he was totally right about this, you know, and I think it's the I think it's the you have a slightly different view of, of corporate media than I do. But I think it's the profit motive. Right. I mean, the, the you know, Fox staged that first debate as a crazy Trump driven spectacle. It was the, it was the most viewed debate of all time. And, you know, the model of kind of staging the campaign and this as this gladiatorial contest which with the crazy Donald Trump at the center of it was is driving profits for the cable networks in a way they've never seen before. It's true. So but but then if you say okay in moments where journalists have this kind of, you know, awakening of conscience, they say, look, uh maybe we didn't do enough about Trump early on. He's a serious threat now, so we're going to kind of step away from 
this tone of voice and this approach that we typically are required to use, maybe not fundamentally, but certainly by degrees. And I, I, I would argue it's, it's pretty fundamental, but even if you say, you know, we're going to step away from it by a matter of degrees, that's when my critique I think is triggered because I do think there have been lots of times in say the past 15 years, whether it's the invasion of Iraq or especially the um, institution of a, of a regime, a worldwide regime of torture, um, where journalists didn't do that. Um, you know, pretty much every major media outlet refused, for example, to call interrogation techniques that have long been regarded as torture, including by those very media outlets when used by other countries. They refused to call it torture even because to do so would be to side against the government and therefore breach journalistic duties. And I think when it starts to be taken to that extreme, um, this kind of worship of objectivity, I think it can be not only dangerous, but an abandonment of journalistic duties for precisely the reason that you just said. Journalists are now starting to be a little, a lot more aggressive in denouncing Trump, which is they feel their conscience requires it. Yeah, but the paradox here a little bit. I mean, you you think there's a sort of corporate imperative towards neutrality, but you know the example of the most successful media company is Fox News, which is the most partisan and least neutral in general. Although, you know, you could argue that they have they they haven't applied their own uh, their own formula in relation to Trump. Yeah, but that's really that's actually a, an interesting example. And I think in some senses kind of bolsters the, the, the framework that I think prevails, because Jack Schaefer wrote this really interesting column back in 2013. It was actually in the context of the attacks on the journalism I was doing reporting on the Snowden Archive where, you know, people were saying this isn't journalism, this is activism, and that whole debate. And he went back and sort of said the history of journalism as it was first protected by the founders in the Bill of Rights under the free press clause, and then as it evolved for the next two centuries, was very much this kind of, you know, activist-driven, crusading type of journalism. Um, And it's only really recently that this model of rigid objectivity was embraced, and it kind of coincided with the corporatizing of media. And and I think the reason that has happened is because a lot of these, most of the corporations that own media outlets have media as one of their businesses, but then they have a huge number of other non-media businesses that require good relations with people who wield power, good relations with the government, good relations with the agencies that regulate them, good relations with the people who dole out contracts in the Congress and in, in the executive branch. And there's this almost conflict of interest where you have a media that should be adversarial to the people in power, but then these other corporate interests that always want to avoid controversy and keep good relations with people in power. Fox News is, is a great counterexample because Rupert Murdoch's primary business is media. It's not, you know, he's not also selling a lot of insurance and weapons to governments and, um, you know, a whole bunch of other things that require good relations with government. And so he's able to be more controversial and more offensive in the way that journalism was designed to be. I think that's actually a good counterexample. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that, you know, there there are certainly a number. I mean, CNN is is freestanding, but CBS and, and some other news organizations are tied to entertainment companies. But, you know, w- what I see is these these companies pursuing the profit motives, which is pe- what people who run businesses do. And the way you maximize revenue is maximize attention. And you do that by cultivating some kind of hysteria, whether it's partisan hysteria or emergency hysteria. But you do that by trying to make the news urgent and exciting. I agree. I agree. But I agree that that is definitely a big part of, of the motive. Um, you know, but at the same time, I do, I, 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 and this is it's kind of intangible. 
But and I don't want to romanticize the past because it's easy to do, but it really is the case that like, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, the iconic journalist was kind of, you know, this frumpy outsider kind of outcast, you know, with, you know, like a stained t-shirt, uh, shirt and, 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 um, not making a lot of money and just working in, in a newsroom that was really just filled with and run by journalists. Um, and they were kind of anti-authoritarian and maybe that came from being outsiders and outcasts. Once you corporatize newsrooms and media outlets, and by corporatize, I simply mean you integrate it into a corporate ethos. So you have, you know, managers who report to financial people and non-journalists. Um, the whole environment of corporations is very much one of avoiding lots of controversy, definitely being inoffensive and, and avoiding alienating lots of people. So you kind of find the controversies and the, the things to alarm people that are consistent with that. So, you know, CNN can do a week straight of scaring people about ISIS because that's good for their profits, but it also doesn't really alienate anybody because everyone hates ISIS and people who wield power want that kind of opposition to ISIS because they benefit from it. So I think there's sort of that sweet spot where, yeah, they want controversy, they want alarmism and, and fear because that's good for their ratings, but always within the framework of never really challenging pieties and orthodoxies most cherished by the people who wield the greatest power. It's not absolute. I just think there's a tension there once you start corporatizing media. Yeah, I mean, you could argue we're in a kind of golden age of media pluralism where, sure, you have CNN doing, you know, both, sort of producing both sort of pablum and f phony outrage and just a lot of poor quality journalism. Um, but you also have The Intercept and you have Slate, you have Gawker and you have Fox News and, you know, it's sort of let 100 flowers bloom. But I guess what I worry about, Glenn, is that going back towards the more partisan pre-20th century model that you said Jack Schaefer wrote about is that we go further into this sort of filter bubble problem where we all only listen to media that we already agree with and nobody's persuaded and, you know, what the media does essentially is reaffirm everybody's beliefs. That is a huge problem. And I mean, you know, I think like this thousand flowers blooming um, value that you correctly described as a positive development stems largely from the internet, um, which has just kind of diversified the number of voices and the ways that you can reach large audiences without having to rely on a handful of corporations who own big, you know, printing presses or uh, television networks. But you're right. The internet has also allowed and is allowing increasingly people to be really selective about the kind of news that they hear in a way that only bolsters what they already think. And so, for me as a journalist, I mean, I see one of my roles is constantly trying to prod at and pick at and kind of undermine and challenge my own um, hardcore beliefs, but certainly those of my readers as well, in order to always just make it so that there's not this echo chamber and to make sure that your media outlets have a different range of voices, people who disagree with one another. You know, I think ultimately that's the kind of journalism that uh, will also thrive. Um, I don't think you can avoid uh, having people only listen to the sorts of things that affirm what they think. You know, you have lots of liberals who just sit in front of MSNBC for 24 hours a day, lots of conservatives who love only Fox and Rush Limbaugh. You know, I don't know what you can do about that problem, except, you know, try and have journalists who offer a range of opinions and who see their role as always kind of undermining and making uncomfortable um, even the most cherished hardcore beliefs of one's own readers and viewers. Glenn, if I could just ask you for a last thought on Trump, you're, you're talking to us from, from Rio, where you live. What's the perspective on Trump 
from Brazil. What have, what do your Brazilian friends think about what's going on in American politics right now? <laughs> well, um, in Brazil, there, as you probably know, there's this massive political turmoil um, that exceeds certainly the controversy from Trump and, and even the kind of turmoil that the U.S. saw during Watergate. So they tend to be kind of preoccupied with that at the moment. But um, <laughs> you're talking about the uh, the arrest of Lula, the former prime minister. Yeah, and the likely impeachment of, of their current president, Dilma, and the sort of imprisonment of the richest and most powerful people in the country by the dozens. Um, it's a total upheaval of the social and political order. But I mean, I think, you know, that Trump is widely depicted as this kind of threatening, dangerous figure. And, you know, it's it's really interesting because, of course, he is that for all the obvious reasons. And yet what's so bothersome about it um, is not just domestically, but I think in terms of internationally, is that he's actually channeling a lot of legitimate frustration. He's actually tapping into a lot of valid anger toward the political establishment. He's actually calling into question a lot of orthodoxies, foreign policy orthodoxies, domestic orthodoxies that are typically shielded from debate by politicians because of, you know, kind of how conventional and fearful they are. And all of that potential value from what could have been brought by his candidacy has been completely drowned by the sort of hatred and bile and, and, you know, all just the extremism and the petty drama surrounding it. I think the perspective internationally is very much focused on those parts of his candidacy. And there's a lot of just confusion about how the United States, as they perceive it, could possibly be open to empowering someone like him. Glenn, it's a pleasure talking to you and thanks for joining us. Hey, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. Tell us what you think of the show by giving us a rating and review on iTunes. I mean, really tell us what you think of the show. You can find me on Twitter at Jacob Wee. Trumpcast is produced by Henry Malofsky and Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Thanks as always to John D. Domenico for his trip to the doctor's office as Donald Trump. Sam Dingman played the doctor. Today, I'll leave you with a clip from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Colbert interviewed a cartoon Donald Trump. No, not Donald Trump the cartoon, an animated cartoon version of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Talk to you on the next edition of Trumpcast. Okay, now, now, Mr. Cartoon Trump, how do you respond to Anderson Cooper comparing you to a five-year-old? Anderson Cooper's a dumb-dumb. He's a stupid head, a total poopy pants, it's sad. Okay, right right now, I gotta say, you, you are sounding a little immature. I know you are, but what am I? Oh, come on, come on, you, you sound like an idiot. Steven, I'm Robbie, you're glue, I have a lawyer, and I will sue. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.